If you just think there's a product and a customer and a desire, it's the same everywhere. You just have to answer those right questions. But I think a vast majority of the product will change. I think there's a real opportunity to change and it will make a big, big difference. It was people calling us, asking us for solutions, as opposed to us finding solutions and trying to force them on people that made us go into this vertical. Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We wanna show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations, product, and culture sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Christian Kemp Griffin. Christian was an early investor in Cellucomp, the company we're going to talk about today, and is also now the executive director and CEO. Prior to Cellucomp, Christian held the position of CEO at EDUN, or E-D-U-N, a company developing socially responsible and sustainable clothing and owned in part by LVMH. He has direct experience working with farmers and producing and marketing finished products. Christian has also held senior management positions with Ralph Lauren, Lacoste, and Disney Consumer Products, and has extensive experience in product development, manufacturing, marketing, and licensing. Welcome, Christian. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Super exciting. So when I hear your background, I really can't help but ask, how did you move from fashion and sustainable clothing to Cellucomp? Tell us the story of you and your career. As you well heard, I started off in fashion and pretty much traditional fashion in terms of the the retail industry. So I, I just started to work in, in retail at the beginning, worked my way up and, and then actually flipped a coin with my wife when we were sitting in Toronto and we said, we're either going to move to San Francisco or we're going to move to Paris. And the coin toss landed heads. And four weeks later, we were in Paris and I was lucky enough to find a job with Ralph Lauren. And that just led us to living here in Europe. And it was a two-year project that has now lasted over 33 years. Careers just take you sort of on a path that you don't necessarily plan, but uh, lead you in that direction. So I worked with Ralph Lauren for for a long time, got involved in the production, the wholesale. I managed the the retail business at the beginning. And then I was an executive director at at Lacoste uh, globally as well. And then got a a random phone call from Bono, the singer U2. And he uh, was looking for a CEO to run his business, Eden. Mm. And the whole purpose in that business was to create sustainable trade in sub-Saharan Africa. That took me into, let's call it the sustainable world. In between Lacoste and Eden, I met two scientists, David Hepworth and Eric Whale, 
Uh, one we affectionately called Biological Dave, and the other one is Chemical Eric. And they both came from biology and chemistry and merged into material science. And I was one of their first investors in their company when they discovered this material earlier on, which is called Curran. So while I was doing the Eden project and I was very much involved in sustainable business practices because we had something called the Conservation Cotton Initiative, which we managed uh, wildlife, we built schools, we built wells, we gave profits back to the farmers in Africa. We had 10,000 farmers in Uganda while making a business at the same time and then sold that to to LVMH afterwards. But prior to doing the Eden business, I invested in Cellucomp and then joined them afterwards. I know we're talking mostly about Cellucomp, but I can't help Mm -hmm. but ask, what LVMH found attractive about Eden? Uh, they were buying Goodwill. Okay, interesting. That's the main reason. So, an honest yeah, answer. Yeah, and I think Bernard Arnault, uh, you know, his reputation of being this sort of capitalist at all costs. Mm. Uh, the Pinot Group had invested in Stella McCartney, right. and there were some other sort of, you know, fashion brands that had more of an ethical bent to them that were starting at that time. And LVMH wanted to also get a piece of that pie. Got it. Okay. Really helpful. As, as background, I'm an African investor, so it's it's certainly intriguing. Okay. But, yeah. yeah. But let's dive more into Cellucomp. What is microfibrillated cellulose? Exactly. Right at the and heart why, of it. And why should anybody care? Yeah, well, microfibrillated cellulose are there tiny little fibers inside a lot of plants. So microfibrillated cellulose from wood is think of a rope where you have a basic thread. But if you unravel it more, you get into smaller and smaller and smaller threads until you get down to the nano size. And actually, if you can imagine one microfibril, it's like a just imagine a hair and then imagine a crystalline node in the middle. So like a a little diamond in the middle, and that's nanocrystalline cellulose. You see, you have the crystalline cellulose in the middle and the kind of wobbly hair-like structures on the outside. And that is typical microfibrillated cellulose. People think of it, they think of it in terms of wood fibers. But what David and Eric came up with was microfibrillated cellulose from plant fibers and specifically root vegetables. And there you've got a completely different image there. What you can imagine is when you were doing your cell biology at school, you had a cell, it had a cell wall, had a nucleus in the middle, and then it had a whole bunch of empty space, if you remember. So we take that cell wall structure and in it, you have cellulose and hemicellulose and pectins. And we basically wash out the sugary stuff. We wash out the gunk in a sense, and leave the cellulose exposed. And then we essentially shatter that cell wall into little fragments. So then you have these little chunks of these little fragments and inside these fragments are these little hairs, these little microfibers. What do you do with those? So those then- You don't eat them. You don't eat them, do you? Well, you can eat them, actually. You can't eat them. <laughs> Do they taste good? <laughs> we can. Uh, uh, it depends. The carrot fibers taste better than the sugar beet fibers, mm-hmm. and the potato fibers taste a little bit better as well. But no, you can definitely eat them. In fact, one of the applications is to put them into food mm-hmm. to help reduce sugar and fat. 
they do two main things. They make things thicker. Okay. So if you want to, it's like a shampoo, shampoo is no good. If it's just going to run down your hair, it's got to have thickness or paint and they make things tougher, stronger, because these little fibers are strong. So if you put them in to mix with other fibers, you'll make those other fibers stronger. If you put them into concrete, you'll make the concrete stronger. If you put them into paint, they'll crack less. So this is, there's always a component of strength and always a component of sort of thickening that goes with it. And many, many things need both. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's what we do with it. When you say that's what we do with it, are you, is this a commercialized product at this point or is this something in development right now? It's early commercialization. So we are commercializing. It's early stage. So what we do is we take these, we're selling in coatings already. So the, in the, the paint world, we're selling in. And then we're all also selling in what is known as barrier coatings. So these are proper coatings that will actually block things from mo- moisture from going through or grease from going through, et cetera. That's when we get into our main application, which is the packaging area. Yeah. Okay. Which I think we can, we can talk about, but so the commercialized component is within the coating area. So this is for packaging. What does it do that's new in the world of packaging? Well, most packaging is either plastic or glass, a huge amount of it is. And then if you find fiber-based packaging, if you find like paper-based packaging, you'll see actually a lot of it, like a pizza box, for instance, a lot of it will have these PFAS or fluorochemicals pumped into it to stop the grease from getting through. So what looks like paper or like a Tetra Pak carton looks like paper, but it's actually got aluminum and plastic and a whole bunch of different things inside. So most of the packaging that we're using that requires barrier, i.e. what are you going to put your yogurt in? You can't put it into paper. It's just going to soak through. If you put your French fries into a bag that has no protection, you're going to get grease all over you. Or if you're going to have a, your catering and you have a paper plate, it's going to leak through and get on your dress or your white trousers or whatever. So you, you need to have something that's going to block that. And then what, so what we use it for is we add it to paper. We add our current or microfibrillated cellulose to paper and it really closes. It really condenses that sheet. So fewer things can leak through it. And then we top it off with a barrier coating. And the combination of the barrier coating plus the fiber makes makes you be able to replace plastic suddenly or replace these floral chemicals. So you're in France right now and yeah. because of your coin toss. When I walk into a French pharmacy, I see like La Roche-Posay sunscreen and it's now in like what almost looks like a paper tube. Is that similar to your product? Is that what we could expect, this kind of paper replacement for plastic? Or is it more like milk cartons? If it's in a paper tube, it's likely got a plastic lining in the inside. And so it's quite novel to get it with a very thin barrier coating on it instead of a plastic lining. And in fact, plastic lining with paper is much more awkward to recycle Mm -hmm. because which recycling stream do you put it into, right? So. There are people who are putting plastic linings in with paper, but it's much harder to get it with coatings. Makes sense. So how did you decide that packaging was the vertical for your product? I mean, you mentioned food, you mentioned cosmetics and packaging. How, how do you actually decide what 
verticals to prioritize in a business like yours? Yeah, it's a really good question. At the beginning, we started very, very wide with a lot of different verticals to see kind of what would stick, learn more about our material, get a beta product out, see what worked. And quite frankly, it was people calling us, asking us for solutions, as opposed to us finding solutions and trying to force them on people that made us go into this vertical because everyone is trying to look for these solutions now. It was really more of a customer pull area that led us into that direction in the packaging. That makes a lot of sense. When I zoom out a little bit and think about Cellucomp existing alongside other companies, other large consumer goods businesses in the ecosystem of recycling, which kind of makes me think about government and then society as a consumer. I'm always looking for something that is more sustainable. And in that is a deep caring for the environment. How do you value all these different stakeholders? You know, how do you think about them as players in your business? Well, it's really, really critical to get the value chain completely on side and integrated. It's very, very important. There's basically four sets of people that are are critical. One are the material suppliers, like we are. Two is, let's say, the base paper suppliers, let's say. Three are the converters and four are the brands. Mm -hmm. And they all, the converters are the ones who make, will make, physically make the cup and convert it and the brands will, will fill it. So in many cases now we have started with the brands because they're the ones who ultimately want to service their customers with a sustainable choice. And once they have approved a proof of concept, then we quite often go with the brand to the converter and say, okay, let's now make this here or let's make it there and, and work together with them. This is a very, very typical way that we do that, but it's critical that everyone's working together and not in a way that is, okay, well, a zero sum game, you know, if I win, you lose, et cetera, because it's not going to get off the shelf if it's not very, very well integrated and that people aren't making compensation along the way. Government are involved. There's a lot of regulation now. This PFAS is a big, big problem. I mean, it's been in the news a lot. There have been a lot of films about it, etc. This is being phased out completely in the market. And there are a lot of plastic taxes coming on uh, now that these brands need to move. Absolutely. So it's a very, very coordinated uh, effort together to do that. I'll just give you one example. We had the cosmetic industry in France all get together about 12 brands saying we need to redo our packaging. And they brought in a whole bunch of startups, the 12 brands, and said, okay, let's work on very specific projects now to get this to market. So that's quite coordinated and really helpful. So there must be other options for getting rid of PFAS, PFAS. What about these so-called biodegradable plastics? Are those yeah. the same thing or are they different? Or what is... Help us understand what that is. Yeah, you can go down the sort of paper fiber route, which is what I was talking about, or you can go down what you call bioplastic route. And the bioplastic route, you now spread into many, many different options. And the problem with these options are, one, if you're getting plastic from a renewable source as opposed to a synthetic, that's good, but you're still making it plastic. You still got a bead at the end that a fish is going to swallow, if you want to think of it that way. Okay. Mm-hmm. You've also got the issue where some are recyclable and some are compostable, 
But if you put the compostable in ones in with the recycling, you're going to screw up the recycling. And if you put the recycling ones in thinking it's compostable and it's not, you screw up that system. So consumers don't know what the difference between PPE is and PE and PLA is, et cetera, et cetera. It's very confusing. They all look like they're the same thing, but they actually behave very differently. Yeah, and like some what, things like PLA, which is very popular, which is of those bags, mm-hmm. they're good, but they don't have the, the they don't have the barrier qualities right. that they need. The barrier is not good enough. That happened to me recently. And so that's what? probably the what the bag. The bio bags, like the we have little ziplocs oh, like, oh, zip that locks. are actually what, fully. Leaked? No, but I ha- having a powder in there, and when it gets humid outside in Dallas, it starts to get mushy in the bag. Oh, it does. Yeah, water uh, water vapor barrier. Vapor. That mm-hmm. is the key. That is the key thing. So th- you're not talking about water blocking. You're talking about water vapor barrier. It's a new market for you. There you go. Competitors wow. to Ziploc. I never when I go to the zoo, which is always or like you know some kind of museum <laughs> where there's an environment environmentally sensitive janitorial system you mm-hmm. know and there's like six different options for where to put my lunch wrapping paper i hate that yeah. and I, everyone's mm-hmm. got to sympathize with that right sure i mean everyone cares and you just you, you throw it in the wrong one and and you just feel so badly because you just is there any solution to that christian I mean, help us solve the problem we it's all have. It's really, it's really difficult. I mean, the only thing, I mean, that the way it's easy for me personally is because I'm equally confused with this is that if it's something that looks like paper and they say it can go into paper recycling, it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. The plastic combos are very difficult for me, but the paper one's the easiest. I know there's no solution for that. You are also, from what I understand, using agricultural waste. And there's another dimension of impact to that. Talk about where you think the impact is. And also when you're manufacturing Curran, do you have to sit next to an industrial farm? No. The main root vegetable we're using is a sugar beet. Sugar beet is like a big turnip and they get taken out of the ground and they all get shipped to a central area that makes sugar. So it's all that lovely white powdered sugar (laughs) that we all love. Basically what they do is they chop it up into like French fry strips and they put it through a massive factory and the sugar oozes out of these French fry strip pieces and the fiber goes on the other side. Very similar to if you're going to make carrot juice, you squeeze the juice out and at the bottom you have a tray of all that fiber. Okay. Very, very similar process to that. Got it. And what happens typically is that sugar beet pulp can get wasted, get put back on the land, get fed for animal feed, various different things, but it's not a highly valued thing. And we can take that fiber, like the carrot fiber that I was describing, and we can use that as our feedstock. But prior to shipping it to us, they can also dry it into pelletized form. And if it's dried into pelletized form, we don't need to be next to the sugar factory. But it's better to be near a sugar factory. Okay. So what we do is, and remember I described how we clean the gunk out, the sort of pectins and hemicellulose. Yes. That stuff is great because there's actually more sugars in there that the factory can't squeeze out of the process they have, but because we're digging into the cell wall structure, we're liberating more sugars. And in fact, that's methanized and turned into biogas. So here we are taking the waste stream. We're not competing for land with food. Okay, because it's a byproduct of the the food industry. It's a renewable crop. 
we're taking the fiber, we're making good use of it to use it for sustainable products. And we're taking our waste stream and we're converting it into biogas. So it's a really, really interesting, impactful, circular story. Is it net zero? Until we build the big factory, yeah, we won't know entirely, but it's going to be very, very close to it. Yeah, because we're producing a lot of energy. It's a very simple process. That's incredible. Wow. And how many employees do you have? We have six. Okay. Are they all scientists? Uh, how, how, how is the team structured? Uh, scientists and, and business development, customer relations. and But we have quite a network of people that we work with we're not necessarily on the payroll, but are constantly involved with the business. Is yeah. it fair to say that you're at the point now where you're going to like kind of build your first big factory and start making a bunch of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly it. So we've been, we're moving our Scottish plant, which we have now, we're doubling the size of it. And we just recently opened a business in Minnesota, actually. Oh, wow. And there we're looking at building a, a much bigger factory there. There are three big sugar factories in Minnesota. There's next to Wisconsin, there's a big paper maker. And then Chicago is a big area for food packaging. McDonald's is there. A lot of food companies are there. The two General Mills is in that area. And there's also a Danish company that is building a lot of biogas factories in Minnesota. So it's absolutely perfect for us. Oh, I love Danish. Right next to the sugar (laughs) plant. Oh, you you don't mean a Danish factory. You mean a Danish factory. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, can you tell us around lunchtime? Yeah. They're, they're sweet. They're she's, sweet as well. She's well. Danish. Yeah, yeah. They're 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 building these these big factories, so they're going to take our little sugary water and they're going to fly it into their into their biogas area. We throw this in. Talk about the impact. This is really important for us too. Is we also want to try as best we can when we're up in successful Minnesota. Is really trying to help some of the agricultural communities as well, giving back to them. That's a that's a big part of what our sort of vision is. Our material change for good vision of the company. Would that be philanthropic, or would that be buying their waste essentially? Well, buying their waste for sure, but also trying to invest into the community a bit. Mm. But we obviously have to be successful first to do that. So one question I have, switching a little bit to you as a leader, you know, you've got this Mm -hmm. amazing story. I know it takes time to get this kind of business going. How do you keep kind of the team moving forward and, you know, rally in all of these different partners in the supply chain? What is your method for kind of building the, the credibility and momentum behind this business? Yeah. Well, I mean, like any startup, it's not always easy for sure. So, you know, we've definitely had some ups and downs and that's credit to everyone who's in the company as well. Like the founders are great and they're pretty dedicated to the, they're very dedicated to the business and we all are. So even in difficult times and COVID was a difficult time, I mean, we really had to hunker down. This is as we were migrating from the coding business into the packaging business it was a complete change of direction in some sense. And that was a difficult time. We're extremely resilient and we got a few breaks where a few of the customers wanted to dig in and and look at our material for their packaging, which is then hugely motivating. And it was very easy to get the investors motivated in, in building this idea for packaging. And we also worked with some technology institutes that could give third-party credibility to our product. So brands would go to them saying, help us with our packaging problem. 
And they would say, well, look, we've been using this material for a while and this is really working. And so it's not us saying it necessarily. It's this third party that is able to give us some credibility. And that was hugely motivating for the team as well, because suddenly now we had an outside stamp of approval, a real leader in this area that could, could move the business forward. Do you see a world in the future, I don't know how far, but as far out as you have to look, where there's just no plastic packaging anymore at all? based on technologies like CelluComp, like no more plastic water bottles, no more plastic yeah. food containers. I, like, what do you think? I don't think we'll get rid of plastic. I mean, mm. I'd love it to be the case. I just think, <laughs> I think that's a, an ambitious goal. It's a, cause I think you'll always have people who are really going for bottom price and, and so on. But I think a vast majority of the product will change. I think there's a real opportunity to change and it will make a big, big difference. The logo is actually with Curran, not just Curran, it's with Curran. So you can package with Curran, you can eat with Curran, you can do all. So imagine this world where the Curran is this sort of inside component to a lot of different materials that you're using because it could be in composites and many other things. So the first is to get it branched out massively in packaging to get rid of the floral chemicals and to get get rid of the plastic as much as possible. And then you can imagine a world that, a world that goes much, much larger because we can use potato after too, after the sugar beet goes or we can use carrots after that uh, or cassava. There are many different mm. root vegetables that we can use for our material. We're not stuck with sugar beet either. I love that. And uh, cassava is pretty cheap and pretty water efficient to grow. And I know it because it's grown in the countries where I invest in Africa and Mm -hmm. in other kind of global South. Which countries do you do invest in? I know you're asking me the questions, but I'm curious because I worked a lot in Africa. (laughs) Yeah, I'm an, uh, we originate all of our deals in East Africa out of Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, and then previously actually had a pretty significant exit from a Tanzanian agriculture business that grows cassava. So I've been out in the farms and pulled up a a big cassava bush or tree or whatever you call it. But yes, I think you've painted such a good picture. Um, Before we hop into our rapid fire, I do want to just kind of ask you a question about, you know, moving from the brand world to now you're creating a, basically a new product and brand. Do you happen to see parallels between your prior career in fashion and creating a brand that you know LVMH ended up acquiring to what you're doing now? Is that a part of your work in creating the current brand? Yeah, absolutely. There's a crossover. If you just think there's a product and a customer and a desire, it's the same everywhere. You just have to answer those right questions. But I, I don't think that changes business to business. I think there's a huge crossover. And we've seen many examples of it, of people, you know, Pepsi to Apple or whatever it is. There are many different things that is uh, a crossover. So I think on the marketing side, the brand development side, it's pretty similar. The only slight difference is, is whether you're focused on a B2B marketing strategy or a B2C marketing strategy. And that does differ. Absolutely. But ultimately something gets into the consumer hands. So there's always an element that's B2C in, in some cases. In terms of fashion to this, I mean, growing cotton, right. <laughs> growing sugar beet, I mean, we're rotating crops. I feel very comfortable on a farm from from all the, all that work we've done. That's very, very similar, very, very similar idea of trying to maximize the value for the farmer, for the land, 
and for all the, the downstream products that come from it. And manufacturing is manufacturing too. It's, it's not that different. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting that. So now we get to dive into you more personally. Let's do it. Rapid fire. And the first okay. question, Christian, is what book is on your nightstand right now? How to Dismantle a Dictator by Maria Ressa, who's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? It's coffee. Yes! I knew it. <laughs> it's probably, is it a really small coffee? It's a like lot of coffee. French? Okay, good. It's a lot of coffee. <laughs> no, Great. no, no, no. I, I have coffee in the morning and then maybe, you know, restaurant in the evening, a little espresso. Oh, wow. Fantastic. I like it. But I had a lot of tea while I was in Uzbekistan. A lot of chai. I can imagine. Name something that's giving you hope right now. What's giving me hope? I think young people, mm. they're, they're doing a lot of great things. They're really insightful. Their way of, of thinking about the world in general and not being single-minded, I think is, is really helpful. What is a big trend you're watching right now in the packaging industry? The big trend I'm looking in is the fiber packaging trend for food. Yeah. That makes sense. Is there a resource that helps you stay up to date on micro fibrillated cellulose? <laughs> Maybe it's a podcast <laughs> or a newsletter or some sort no, of trade mag. No, there is a guy who puts out a journal every five years on the update of microfibrillated cellulose, but I actually don't find it that helpful. It's just much more helpful about knowing the other people, going to conferences, seeing what they're doing and, and so on. So we know everyone in this world pretty well mm -hmm. and, and what they're doing. And we compete in a friendly way, but we have a pretty distinct product because there's no one who's doing our platelet form, our chunk of the cell wall. So we're pretty unique that way. All right, Christian, what is your favorite way to unwind after a tough day of microfibrillated cellulose action? <laughs> I, I like to play tennis. I think that's probably the best. And what is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Good question. I haven't thought of that. I would say just stay very, very open-minded on lots of options. Look out for things that come from your periphery and do not put the blinders on, on what you're doing. That's incredible. Christian, thank you so much. This podcast has made me feel optimistic and I've learned so much from you and my nickname in high school was biology girl. So I like you, you talked about your corner of the cell wall. It really resonated with me. Thank you for being our guest today. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Christian. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Once again, it's clear that conscious leaders can find a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company in a truly holistic way, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me at EA Stevens on Twitter. And you can follow me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.